0: The Moth is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive helps you compare direct auto rates from a variety of companies so you can find a great one, even if it's not with them. Quote today at Progressive.com to find a rate that works with your budget. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Calling all educators. Join the Moth this summer for the Virtual Moth Teacher Institute. We're not your average teacher training. Forget what you think you know about professional development. At MTI, we're all about infusing your classroom with the magic of storytelling. MTI is for 5th to 12th grade teachers, whether you're looking to fine-tune your strategies or you're a curious newcomer eager to learn more about moth storytelling. Picture this, a new community of teachers all over the country. Vibrant discussions, engaging activities, live storytelling shows, access to moth curriculum, and so much more. This summer, MTI will take place from August 5th to the 9th. Applications close on June 23rd. Visit themoth.org forward slash MTI to apply today. Welcome to The Moth Podcast, I'm Kate Tellers, your host for this episode. Throughout 2022, the moth has been celebrating its 25th anniversary by revisiting our history, counting down year by year. In this episode, we're bringing you back to 1998, the year that the moth celebrated its first birthday. As we learned to walk, metaphorically, we started to refine the role of a moth story director. Very often, people would come to us with the seed of an idea— Or, even more often in the early days, we would seek out potential storytellers who we thought might thrive on our stages. Some people had stage fright. Some thought they had no good ideas. Some thought they had so many good ideas. So a director worked with each of the tellers to help prepare them for the stage. Here's how the directing process works. Through a series of conversations, the teller shares their story a draft, an idea, whatever the start, and the director listens, asks questions, and helps to guide the teller to the best version of the story they will then share on our stage. The conversations are intimate. We challenge moth storytellers to be vulnerable, to share their emotional connection to the events of their lives. So during the directing process, storytellers often discover truths about their own experiences that they hadn't realized before. These conversations take place in person, a few recently on Zoom, but mostly over the phone. So often the teller and director meet for the first time at our in-person rehearsal just before the show. In these cases, they'll sometimes recognize each other by voice alone, catch eyes, and leap into each other's arms. I always say working on a story with someone is one of my favorite ways to fall in love at the Moth. After today's story, we'll feature a conversation with two beloved members of our Moth community who have been through this process more than once, Peter Aguero and Samuel James. But first, a story from Peter. He told this at a Moth main stage in Charleston, South Carolina, where the theme of the night was Between Worlds. Here's Peter.
1: So I just uh, finished my first semester of college, and I have a big bag of laundry. And I come through the door of the house, and things aren't looking too good for me and my mom. The first thing I notice is that the piano is gone. Uh, She had that ever since she was a little girl and took piano lessons. We always put the nativity on top of it around Christmas time. I took uh, piano lessons for for two weeks, but I still took piano lessons on that piano and and that's gone. I go through the living room and uh, the only thing that's left is uh, just one couch that's with broken springs sticking out of it. There are two televisions, one on top of the other. One has picture that works and one has sound that works. Over in the corner are the impressions uh, still from my dad's lazy boy uh, that uh, has been gone for four years now. Uh, and that's the only furniture in the room. I go upstairs, the dining room's empty. There used to be this big, beautiful uh, dining room set with uh, carved uh, chairs and a glass breakfront and a buffet table, and that's gone. In the kitchen, there's the kitchen set. There's two chairs. There used to be four, but I broke one of them. And uh, the other chair, I also broke. And uh, <laughs> There's only two left, and I, I go upstairs to the bedrooms, and in my mom's room, uh, there's nothing left but her mattress on the floor. And there's nothing quite as uh, damning as a bedroom without furniture, because uh, you, you, you see all the dings and the scratches in the wallpaper, like all the mistakes that can usually be covered up, but you, you see them all now. My sister's room is exactly the way it looked when she moved out to go live with my dad. It's Pepto-Bismol pink walls and a canopy bed and this uh, big toy box in the shape of a rubber strawberry, uh, as if she was going to move back in and be the little girl that she was uh, before she moved out. My room uh, looks exactly the way it was when I left. There's just posters all over the walls and, and uh, it's, it's ridiculous, like, like me. So. I, I start to do my laundry, and my mom comes home from work, and she immediately takes over. Doesn't let me do it myself, and, and I end up helping her with it. And she's happy to see me. She's happy that I'm home. Uh, when we're done that, we go up to have dinner. And my mom makes uh, tomato casserole. It was one of my favorite things. It was canned tomatoes with cubes of Wonder bread and American cheese baked in the oven. Uh, was, if you put enough shaky cheese on it, it's delicious. You know. <laughs> So we're sitting there uh, in in the two kitchen chairs, and we're, I'm telling her all about uh, my first semester of college and how it finished up, and she's so proud of me, and, and uh, she's telling me about work. My mom's a nurse, and she's been uh, taking all of the shifts that she can, but uh, she had warned me that she was starting to have to sell stuff in the house to be able to catch up on the bills, because the house was too big for the for the two of us. Now that I was away at school, it was just her. So... She was doing everything she could, and and she warned me, but it was still shocking, you know. She had just taken a second job, a part-time seasonal job at the mall behind the perfume counter. My mom didn't like people telling her what to do, so I knew that wasn't going to last very long. Um, And while we're sitting there at dinner, she tells me uh, that, she says, Pete, we're not going to have a lot of money this year for Christmas, so I don't think we're going to be able to give each other presents. And I said, that's okay, Mom. And I'm, I'm being completely honest. I'm just happy to be home with her. I don't need anything. And that's the truth. And uh, we sit there eating quietly for a minute. And then she says, uh, you know, it'd be funny. What if we cut out pictures of things from magazines that we would give to each other if we could? Uh, And we we laughed about it. Uh, And then we cried about it because it's really sad. Uh, It's a really (laughs) sad thing. But then we laughed again because, man, like no matter how hard things are, you just have to laugh, you know. The next day, I decide I'm going to make the house look as Christmassy as possible, and I go up to the attic, and I get the boxes down of the lights, and I hang the lights in the bushes uh, out front and around the gutters. Uh, I want to go uh, get a Christmas tree. I, I grew up in a little small town in New Jersey called Delanco. It was a little uh, small town, 2,500 people, mostly farms. It was At that time, there wasn't Walmart or big stores or anything, so I went over to the local Christmas tree farm to uh, get a Christmas tree. I figured they'd give me a deal because I used to date their daughter, but it turns out they didn't give me a deal because i used to date their daughter and a christmas tree was like 40 bucks man i couldn't afford that so i went back home and i got an old saw out of the garage and i cut out a tree from the side yard and i brought it in it wasn't even like a, a pine tree it was like a stunted maple tree and i put it in the tree holder it had like five branches i put 20 ornaments on each branch and just kind of put the lights on it and called it a day and uh and that's you know my mom came home for work and she just laughed about it you know uh, when, I, when I was visiting my friends who were also home from college, uh, I would uh, steal their mom's fancy catalogs and uh, bring them home and cut out pictures of stuff. Like, uh, you know, a, 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 my mom always wanted uh, a green Jaguar convertible. I found a picture of one of those. I cut her out pictures of uh, gold and, and diamonds and jewelry and island, like all these things that I would love to be able to give my mom for Christmas. And like, as I was doing it, I knew it was sad. It was like a sad thing to do, but I kept collecting them and folding them up and tying them up with ribbons and hiding them in my room and I was waiting to put them under the tree. And like I said, it it was a sad thing, but I knew it was something that would bring us together. I knew it was something that we would always be able to hold on to was something that we would be able to hold on to together, you know? There was one night... Uh, in mid De- uh, toward the end of December, close to Christmas, when we're sitting there in the living room watching the TVs and uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas special is on. One of the TVs hooked up the cable and the other one gets the uh, antenna so the sound doesn't quite jibe up, you know? Um, and we're, we're sitting there uh, just right next to each other on the couch We're world's apart. My mom's exhausted. I've been trying to get her to sell the house for years because I knew it was just too big for her to be in by herself. It was too big for the two of us to be there. If I'm being honest, it was too big when all four of us were living there. I don't know why they got it in the first place, but four years before that, my parents uh, who had been separated on and off the whole time that they were married, um, they were giving it uh, one last try. And the plan was that they were gonna uh, sell the house and take the money and we were gonna move to Georgia uh, from Jersey and have a fresh start. And that was the big plan. And and uh, it went along okay for a couple of weeks and then somebody uh, just came in and poured the eggshells all over the floor again and they started the fight and things were back to normal. And, and that fresh start never really happened. And it culminated with uh, us, the four of us, in the third pew at St. Casmer's Church in Riverside, New Jersey for a Christmas Eve Midnight Mass. And right before the priest started the mass in the packed church, uh, my dad stood up and he walked out of the church. And the only sound you could hear in the silent church was the hydraulic door just go shoo And the four of us, uh, the three of us left uh, stood up and we went outside past the priest and everyone we knew and we went outside and uh, we uh, walked the two blocks to where the car was parked and my dad was nowhere to be found but he left the keys of the car on the hood. And uh, that year, uh, my parents were done. Uh, That was it. I I got what I wanted for Christmas that year. My parents never got back together. But so here we are now today, the the two of us sitting on this couch and uh, trying to watch this thing and let us be happy or something. And she's a million miles away. It's all killing her. Trying to pay the bills, trying to keep it together. She did everything she could to try to keep the house so there would be some semblance of normalcy to the outside world. I know that she took a big hit uh, on her pride. She's a very prideful woman. And I knew that when everyone that she knew in her life saw our family disintegrate that midnight mass, I knew that it was uh, just ripping her. Her apart but she was trying to keep the house together you know and she was a million miles away my mom was my best friend it was the two of us man she was my partner she was like she was like my road dog you know it was like me and her against the world and uh, like being there with her and having her be a million miles away was killing me just like i knew this house was killing her too well, you know, uh, it, it got to be uh, Christmas Eve, and uh, my buddy Brian came over and picked me up, and we went to a different church for Midnight Mass. When you're under 21, you can't go to a bar, so you go see your friends at, at Mass. And uh, we uh, split a jug of wine in the parking lot, and we went, And the Mass was awesome. It was pretty great. <laughs> And uh, afterwards uh, I come home and uh, the next morning I wake up and it's Christmas morning. So I go and I gather up all the little uh, pictures of uh, the gifts that I want to give to my mother are all wrapped up and tied in ribbon and I put them under the tree. And I hear my mom stirring upstairs and she comes downstairs and her hair's in corkscrews and she's got this big flannel house coat on and her big uh, red plastic Sally Jesse Raphael morning glasses with the broken ear thing on the side taped up, you know? And uh, I say, Merry Christmas, Mom. And she goes, oh, honey, oh, hold on. And she goes upstairs, and she's upstairs for a minute. And then she comes back down, and she has a few. And I give her hers first. And there's, uh, you know, there's uh, the jaguar, and the, and the jewelry, and the island, and a picture of a baby grand piano, and a picture of a new dining room set, and a picture of a new mahogany bedroom set, and all these things I wish I could replace for her. And she's smiling and laughing the whole time. And then uh, when it's all done, she gives me mine. And there's three of them. There's a picture of a bag of Reese's peanut butter cups. Uh, There's a picture of a pair of Homer Simpson slippers. And there's a picture of a karaoke machine. And they were all from the same Rite Aid catalog that was up in her bathroom. Because she had completely forgotten about this thing that I thought was gonna bring us together. Because she was working so hard. So we're stuck in the middle of this Oh Henry story that he never should have written, and uh, and I thank her so much for the gifts. And we go upstairs, and my mom makes the best pancakes in the world. You might think your mom does, but I'm so sorry, you're wrong. <laughs> my mom made the pancakes, and but this morning she burned them a little bit, and. Uh, I'm sitting in the kitchen, uh, eating these pancakes, cutting around the burnt pieces, and I'm looking out through our backyard at uh, everybody else's houses, and all the light in their houses looks like orange and colorful and friendly with all these people, and the, our house just feels empty and stark and white in the fluorescent light, eating these pancakes in silence together, the two of us. A Couple months later, uh, she finally did send me my present. I was back in college, man, I'd taken out all the tuition and loans and we couldn't afford it otherwise, but it was important to her that i go. And uh, I had just finished a day of classes and I was heading to the dining hall and I stopped over to check my mail, remember mail, when people used to send mail? And I open up the mailbox and there's an envelope with my mother's postmark on it. And I take it up, and I fill up my, uh, into the dining hall, and I fill up my uh, tray with too much food, uh, because that's what you do. And I go over to a table, and I sit down, and before I start eating, I open up that envelope. And inside, there's no note, there's just one photograph. It's of her standing in front of the house with a for sale sign. And the house sold pretty quickly, and uh, it, it, she got it, she offloaded it. and. Uh, she took a little bit of a hit financially and she took a bigger hit on her pride and she moved into a much smaller place that she could afford Uh, and you know it it hurt her I know it hurt her and it it took a big hit but the most important thing to me was right then we're looking at that picture I got my girl back thank you
0: that was Peter Aguero for many storytellers, their relationship with the moth doesn't end when they walk off of the stage. Many catch the storytelling bug at the moth; they catch a bug, and many relationships develop well after the stage lights have dimmed. As promised, here are two moth storytellers and friends, Peter Aguero and Samuel James.
1: We're friends, and I love you dearly. I love you and, right uh, and if you, so what is your? How do you remember how we met?
2: I remember. Um, <laughs> I remember. So it's at the State Theater. It's in Portland, Maine. Yeah. Uh, you were the host of the show, and I remember like being a little self conscious about being the biggest bearded man in the room, and then in you what, <laughs> and I felt the stress just come off my shoulders right onto yours.
1: What <laughs> <laughs> to uh, what I remember in that moment is is. I again i walked in and it was like oh good the same thing like i'm not the big i'm not i'm not the monster in the room we get to be two monsters (laughs) together i was like oh good and then you you stood up and you were the same exact height as me and then (laughs) i was wearing a batman t-shirt and then you pulled out a batman wallet and you were like hello batman and i said hello batman and then we were and then we fell in love right then. Yeah. And that was, I mean, you're, was, you're Batman
2: was... in my phone. That's who you are in my phone. <laughs> How did you get your start uh, with the moth? Uh, I got my start with the moth from um, when the moth came to town. I think I, it must've been, I want to say like 2013, 2014, something in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were looking for a, a local to tell a story. And uh, I got a call from uh, Meg Bowles. and we started going through stories. I started telling her. So I'm a musician by trade, and so I have a lot of stories about being on the road and ending up in um, odd circumstances. Yeah. And so you know those stories always work well for me on stage or like meeting people. Um, and so I just started hitting her with all these stories. Um, but Meg's, you know, one of the OGs at the Moss. So Meg has heard. Every possible version of every story. <laughs> so, in my life, my stories are unique. And I think in her life, they weren't. And so, we just started digging through stories. I don't know how many stories I told her, but it had to have been upwards of 20. And I think she must have got some sense that I knew how to tell a story. Um, so, she just kept digging.
1: Like, what that's a familiar thing. The way the moth directors will, will tend to work is you'll get in there thinking you're going to talk about one thing. And then they catch something, and then without you knowing, they sneak in the side door and they're like, ah, here's this story. <laughs> and they can then they try to they end up convincing you that it was a story you wanted to tell all along. And it's, I mean, like most things, like we were not always such great judges of like what
2: is interesting about our lives, right? Mm-hmm. I'm very aware of that. My own, my own, uh, my, my own tendency to kind of be precious maybe about something that I've made you know, or something that I've said, yeah, 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 a little sentence that I think is funny, there were definitely moments in the second story, uh the little pink general Lee. there was one moment in particular where I had this joke that I thought was so funny, and I still think is very funny um but it didn't work in the moment like it killed it killed the momentum and it killed yeah. like the drama that was being built, and it was just it was almost like a pressure valve for myself in telling the story that it was like, I knew I could feel the tension I was building for the audience myself. And so I wanted to release it by putting this little joke in there, but it it did the whole story a disservice. And like, you know, Meg was the one who was like, don't put this joke in here.
1: Meg has this, has this great uh, little kind of smirk smile she does <laughs> when it's those <laughs> moments where she's telling you that like the thing you're doing is not a great idea. It's just like, and you're just like, I know, like, you know, she's right. (laughs) To me, the best direction comes where they're just telling you to trust. Of course you're trusting them, but as a monster retailer, you're you're trusting the director, but they're a proxy for yourself. You really have to trust that it's enough, that the facts of what happened and how you felt are enough. And you can watch somebody in a rehearsal, you know, the night before the show, perhaps like still have too many jokes or Mm. too many deflections Mm -hmm, or too mm -hmm. many things that are keeping us away from the honesty and the, like the emotional core of the story. And it's like, you can see the director almost heartbroken, just like, Oh man, I wish they could have, Oh man, if only (laughs) Yeah. the story is not the director's story. It's, it's always Mm. yours. And the best directors make sure that they're invisible in it. Yeah. I would say that the process, some of it kind of surprised me in some of the same ways that it did with you, where you you think that something doesn't matter, and then you realize it did. You know, like you think a a, a moment in the experience might not be as big a deal that it really is, because I you know a lot of times like these the stories that we tell are about a time that was about like a change or, or some pain or a failure, but like when you work on this with a director and they help you kind of identify this stuff, you know, it makes you realize like that thing you did to survive is the thing that is, you know, it's not just yours. It's, those are those moments of, you know, being afraid and being vulnerable and being real and working on these stories over the years have uh, like that always surprised me when you'd go back and how in a way kind of accidentally dishonest we are with ourselves with what we've been through because it's too hard mm-hmm. and it takes a good guide to get you through to the other side and and the directors here at the Mothor, they will very much respect the pain you've been through and want to help you honor it and and want to help you present it in a way that is that honors those feelings and is like and is also, you know, safe for you. You got to make sure you f- it's still, you know, like I remember the first the first story I ever told on a main stage uh was originally a story I told um at a slam and it had no ending. It was uh, the it was a Christmas story um and It was about me and my mom at Christmas. We didn't have any money, but it didn't have an ending. I think my ending of that story originally was, uh, and then after we had breakfast, I realized that I learned nothing from this experience. (laughs) Thank you so much. I didn't know how to do it. So I just... I just walked off stage, and I remember. So that that story, the director of that story was Catherine Burns, and I remember Catherine calling me into the office to to work on that story with me, and she said, "Peter, we need to have an ending to the story. <laughs> because you did learn something from this. You did. you you know you did survive it. You did you know, and so that was the first time that I just like I I trusted and gave into it, and 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 uh, you know it was really beautiful to kind of like flesh it out and like make it bigger and make it smaller and have the story expand and contract and again it was really surprising because again it's like this is just my experience right like the, the most it's it's something i went through it was it was the parts that i thought were the most important might have been the most uninteresting and the things that i skipped over were the parts that were like the juiciest bits and then i never really doubted that i wanted to tell it because it felt good to tell it and it was the, an amazing experience You know, I was really grateful to Catherine for for selecting the story and, like, helping me work on it. That first main stage was in the Metropolitan Museum of Art.
2: (laughs) What a debut. Uh, And,
1: like, it didn't feel, you know, it didn't feel real. And then uh, I told the story. And, like, because Catherine helped me, like, you know, trust in what was there and trust in myself, uh, I was able to tell the story my mother was there and she mm. was in the audience and, and it, it, it took this thing that was really painful for the two of us mm-hmm. and it made it into something beautiful after the story. I, I, you know, I, I took this like uh cathartic exhale breath and Jonathan Ames was the host and he was like, I oh, one more hand for Peter. And then I hear him say, he goes, and Peter's mother, and she stands up and starts waving in the audience (laughs) like she's a duchess. And like my mother is now getting an ovation from a crowd in New York City around Christmas at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. (laughs) It's still it's still like I think that's my mother's favorite part of any of my career has been a uh that you know she got to do that, and B, when it was on the radio that there was on the radio later, uh it went on the record that my mother's pancakes were the best pancakes <laughs> ever cooked in the world. at so, um, like the moment that clicked, it was really about that we had gotten through it, man, that we had that we had survived that, that we had gotten far enough away from it that it was something we could tell the world about. Samuel, it's been great to talk to you, man. I love you so much. I can't wait to see you down the road.
2: Oh, I love you right back. I can't believe I'm looking at your face. After talking to you on the phone for three years and not seeing you, here you are. <laughs> I'm sure somewhere Meg is listening to this with that little smile. Uh, like, <laughs>
1: and look what I did.
2: I'm sure. <laughs> <I'm> sure <laughs> of it. I hope she is. I hope she is.
0: That was Peter Aguero and Samuel James. Peter was born and raised in the wilds of South Jersey. He's been working with the Moth since 2007 as a storyteller, instructor, and host. His solo show, Daddy Issues, has played the far reaches and middle grounds of North America, mostly to acclaim. Except for one guy in Fresno, California. That guy hated it. He spends most of his time listening to the Allman Brothers while making profane ceramics in Queens. Samuel is a journalist living in Portland, Maine. He primarily covers local and national issues as they relate to race. James is also an internationally touring musician and storyteller. We hope this episode inspires you to call someone and ask them to tell you a story. You never know what might happen next. That's all for this episode. From all of us here at The Moth, have a story-worthy week.
3: Kate Tellers is a storyteller, host, senior director at The Moth, and co-author of their fourth book, How to Tell a Story. Her story, but also bring cheese, is featured in The Moth's All These Wonders, true stories about facing the unknown, and her writing has appeared on Mick Sweeney's and The New Yorker. This episode of The Moth Podcast was produced by Sarah Austin Jeunesse, Sarah Jane Johnson, and me, Mark Sollinger. The story in this episode was directed by Catherine Burns. The rest of The Moth's leadership team includes Sarah Haberman, Jennifer Hickson, Meg Bowles, Jennifer Birmingham, Marina Kluche, Suzanne Rust, Brandon Grant, Leanne Gully, Inga Gladowski, and Aldi Kaza. All Moth stories are true, as remembered by the storytellers. For more about our podcast, information on pitching your own story, and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. The Moth Podcast is presented by PRX, the public radio exchange. Helping make public radio more public at prx.org.